Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 69, produced 15 July 2020. More than 500 species of birds call Scotland home. Its diverse landscape, ranging from soaring Monroes to peatland bogs to miles and miles of seashore, provides needed and varied natural habitats. Yet Scotland's feathered populations are on the decline. I'm Glenn Moyer, and one wee family-run charity is working to save Scotland's birds by delivering a bit of TLC to those injured by one manner or another and then releasing them back into the wild. In a moment, we'll travel to Northeast Scotland, to the Highlands, to find and explore the Blue Highlands Raptor Rescue and Avian Conservation Center, right here, under the tartan sky. Hashtag stay at home cancelled your plans to visit Scotland this year? We still can't know when travel and tourism will be restored, but there are other ways to experience all that you love about Scotland, even while staying at home. For example, go online and take a virtual tour of a favourite attraction or distillery. Search social media for Scottish groups and forums. Identify and read a book by a new Scottish author. Stage your own whiskey tasting or cocktail hour with Scottish craft gins. Stream Scotland into your living room. Today's services can deliver everything from cinematic marvels like Outlaw King to classic TV comedies like Still Game. Seek out a Scottish travel blogger or two. Their content may inspire you. Try learning Gaelic. The new free app Duolingo is a place to start. Or listen to your favourite podcasts like The Tartan Noir Show, Stories of Scotland, and of course, this one. Until Scotland can once again welcome the world, check out www.visitscotland.com for more ways to experience Scotland and Scottish culture while safely staying at home. Scotland is a land of diverse landscapes and abundant seas, and as such, it offers natural habitat for a wide variety of seabirds, farmland birds, garden birds, upland birds, woodland birds, <laughs> and more. The Scottish Ornithologist Club, established in 1936 with the goal to promote the study, enjoyment, and conservation of wild birds and their habitats across Scotland, reports in its Scottish list, a checklist of the birds of Scotland, as amended through 2019, that a total of more than 500 species and subspecies of birds call Scotland home. In fact, Scotland's bird populations range from genteel songbirds that make their homes in your garden to raptors, large birds of prey at the top of the food chain that soar above the wilderness and hunt with surgical precision. 
these many bird species are just part of Scotland's overall wildlife scene that, when coupled with the country's incredibly scenic landscapes, combines to make nature tourism a booming business. Even a decade ago, in 2010, Scottish National Heritage estimated nature tourism to be worth a staggering £1.4 billion, almost $2 billion, to the Scottish economy. And much has changed in 10 years. Wildlife tours with both land-based and boating trips have become increasingly available, and the age of the digital camera has introduced an entirely new clientele interested in wildlife stalking, albeit for shooting with a camera instead of a gun. More and more mainstream sporting activities like skiing, hiking, cycling, kayaking, etc. are all organized now with an objective to get as close to nature as possible. And all of this is having an impact on nature. According to the SOC, many people consider birds to be the litmus paper test for the health of the environment. And in recent years, the news has, well, not been good, as there have been multiple reports that bird populations across the UK, including Scotland, have been on the decline. The State of Nature Scotland report 2019, for example, shows that while the 143 species of birds assessed appear broadly stable, Scotland's seabird populations have experienced significant declines over the last 30 years. Meanwhile, the Scottish National Heritage reported that upland birds have suffered a, quote, worrying decline, end quote, with 10 out of 17 breeds decreasing in numbers. There are many causes of this. Modified land usage, agriculture, deforestation, and climate change, just to name a few. And there is man. We build urban centers that destroy habitats. We then venture into the wilderness to holiday, to escape from our urban surroundings, again invading and disrupting natural habitat. We pollute the air and the water, which in turn can pollute the food chain. Small animals subjected to pesticides used for farming can in turn poison an osprey or eagle that feeds upon them. Planes, trains, and automobiles are all dangerous to birds, as are many other man-made objects like wind turbines that puncture the sky. Fortunately, Scotland is working to progressively tackle climate and ecological issues. Numerous organizations exist specifically with the interest of birds at their center, such as the SOC, the Scottish Ornithologist Club, the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and there is, of course, the SSPCA, the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and others. These organizations focus largely on the broad brush issues that impact wild bird populations. Then there is the Blue Highlands Raptor Rescue and Avian Conservation Center. Nestled in the small Highlands village of Brora on Scotland's east coast, about halfway between Inverness and John O'Groats, the Blue Highlands Raptor Rescue is working to save Scotland's birds, one injured bird at a time. Unlike other large government-funded programs, Blue Highlands is a tiny organization, but one that is making a significant and growing impact with just two full-time staff, founding director Hadassah Bruskova and assistant director Jane Wilson. Blue Highlands is an avian rescue center whose focus is on the return back into the wild of the injured birds introduced into their care. It is a family-run charity and the only center of its type in this area of the Highlands. Assistant Director Jane Wilson says its founding was based on a deeply personal interest in animal welfare. 
So when the founding director and her family moved to the Highlands, there was already a long history, a 30-year history of having worked in various animal welfare roles, looking after everything from birds to sloths. Um, and when the family finally settled in this part of the Highlands, in Brora, just a small town, and, and decided to make this their forever home, then Blue Highlands was born. And Originally, the plan was that if there were a number of different avian rescue centres, that she would look to specialise more with owls and raptors because that's her particular area of interest um, in the bird world. But once they opened and got started, it became pretty apparent that instead of becoming one of many avian rescue centres, um, there really are very, very few and actually no specific other rescue centres in this part of the Highlands at all. So it's gone from being Blue Highlands Raptor Rescue to pretty much Blue Highlands Avian Rescue and everything from you know, a, a, a small siskin um, to um, shorebirds, owls, you name it. If it's a bird and it comes to us, we look after it. Rescue is somewhat self-explanatory, but I know there are other parts of the work that's done there. So what exactly is the mission of the rescue center? There are actually three strands, Glenn. First of all, there is the 24-7 crisis center where birds that have suffered accidents, injuries, or got themselves into trouble in one way or another can come in and receive treatment and care with the aim to wild release those as soon as they're ready to go. Um, secondly, we have quite an extensive education program so we go out to groups community groups schools um, groups of pupils youngsters um, older residents and we deliver educational talks and some of those involve meet the bird sessions where we will take some of the birds with us to I suppose to, to illustrate some of the points that we're making in those educational talks and then thirdly we get involved in some conservation work so species that are threatened or even extinct in the wild we have a propagation program where we work with other organizations to help with um, getting those numbers back up in whatever small way that we can so for example edward's pheasants that are um, thought to be extinct in the wild there's some really good work going on not just um, in the uk but across the world to help the numbers of those birds in captivity to reach a better platform, a better um, number, so that we can help to stabilise that population. Um, so that's the three things, really, crisis centre, education and conservation work. Your founding director recognised there was indeed a need for a centre like this in that area of the Highlands. The only real other two centres I'm familiar with is the Scottish Seabird Centre, which is down on the east coast near Edinburgh. And then up in Shetland was the Fair Isle Observatory that is in the process now of being rebuilt and hopefully reopening next year after being destroyed by fire. So was there, in fact, a real need across Scotland for a, a rescue centre, a centre that would obviously take care of injured birds? Well, there's a there's a lot of miles between Shetland and uh, the east coast down by Edinburgh. There there is of course, you know, national um, organisations like the SSPCA, the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, um, and also the RSPB, who who both do fantastic work. But the thing that tends to be really missing. Um, is the ability to have space and time to dedicate to injured birds who need 
a few days, a few weeks to be able to have that rehabilitation time to get back on their feet or to get wings repaired and and working again because the main aim is wild release. So we're always working with these birds with that primary focus of wild release. That that's the big goal. Any bird that comes in, we want to help it in its recovery period. And there just aren't very many places set up um, where they can provide that immediate care. So you take a veterinary practice, for example, they can help with fixing wings or legs or, or the repair work. But then what? There are no dedicated centres that are, are looking to provide the space, the care and the, the TLC to get those birds back on their feet, back in the sky and off to wild release. So absolutely, um, it was identified that there was a need in this area. I think probably an underestimation of, of the need because we have birds that come in from members of the public, from the police, from confiscations, from the SSPCA, from um, organisations, for example, Network Rail, one of the big um, rail providers had a situation just last week where a kestrel, a female kestrel, had been struck by a train. You know, where would that bird have gone otherwise? Perhaps to a vet, sure, for immediate attention, but then what? The vet's practices do brilliant work and, and our own vets are fantastic, but they don't have aviaries out the back or mews out the back of the veterinary practices to be able to provide that, that care for the birds to take them through to being prepared and ready for wild release. So that's one of the big things that we do. And invariably, we will have a bird that cannot make it to wild release and then there's a decision to be made. If the bird is disabled long term, can it be provided for in a way that is enriching and fulfilling and will give it a life that um, is worth living for the bird? And if it can, and if it can cope with the disability but simply can't cope back out in the wild, we have a number of resident birds, either captive bred birds that can't be released or disabled birds that we've been asked to look after in the long term or who've been injured and we simply can't wild release them. So there's a, a mixture of outcomes, but always the thing that we're looking for is to get the birds back into the sky. And I was going to ask, how do injured birds come to your attention? Are they collisions with automobiles, uh, hunting accidents, encounters just in wildlife? Uh, um, you know, a predator may be attacking a bird. Do, do you see all of those types of things coming into the center? Absolutely. Um, there have been a, th- there's been an incredible um, swelling of support from members of the public who previously might have found a bird, didn't know what to do with it, whether it was injured or maybe had fallen from a nest during a storm. Maybe, you know, we have stormy weather in the highlands, as you well know, we, we can have all four seasons in one day. <laughs> yes. um, but, you know, if we get particularly stormy weather and nests have been knocked from trees or from rooftops, it may well be that, you know, we've got broken eggs or newly hatched chicks and something needs to be done. We have a lot unfortunately of vehicle strikes we have we're on the nc500 the main route that goes around the highlands hugely popular um, and brings a lot of business to um, uh, the villages and towns around that route but the amount of traffic on that road does mean that from time to time a bird will be struck and now that the public know where we are and what we do they will scoop up that bird if it's handleable pop it into a box to help it to get over the initial shock um, and lots of birds arrive out at our door at our clinic at our gate because they've been struck by vehicles cats do catch birds and they don't always kill them um, so we do get 
quite a few birds that have been mauled by cats and sometimes by dogs. Um, as I say, vehicle strikes, window strikes as well. So we have a lot of impact injuries. Birds have flown into windows. Um, we like to build houses these days with nice big glass expanses so that we can see the beautiful countryside that, that's on our doorstep. But those do unfortunately catch a lot of birds out um, and windows that don't have decals on them to let the birds know that it's not a continuation of the countryside that they're seeing. We do end up with quite a few of those. Um, but we also have a lot of those birds that do recover and do make it back out to the wild again. So it's a mix. The police, the SSPCA, or RSPB, all sources and from everywhere. Scotland, of course, is home to a wide variety of, uh, of bird life. My favorite, and I think most everyone's favorite, of course, is the puffin. But there are also uh, red kites, kestrels, owls, the guillemots, which are just amazing. I was I remember watching a, a BBC program about when the little chicks have to do their their death-defying dive off the cliff sides. There's razor bills, there are ospreys, and a lot of other varieties that I'm sure I don't even know about. You mentioned that it was founded as the Raptor Center, um, but I gather that you see a wide variety of birds of all types. Brilliantly, we see a huge variety. So so in a good way, we get to see so many different birds. It's it's fascinating. It's an absolute privilege to do that. Unfortunately, if we're seeing them, that's because something has happened to them. So it, it really is a double-edged sword. We see a lot of shorebirds because our village is literally on the ocean. We're a quarter of a mile from the beach and the river, and we see a lot of shorebirds. Um, and this year, guillemots, oyster catchers, um, we've seen more than our fair share of those. Um, so it's a huge variety. We also see, a, we, we look after a lot of garden birds. Fledgling season is particularly busy because whilst I think the public is becoming more aware of the need to walk away and leave fledgling birds that are feathered because parents will be attending to them and calling to them and feeding them, people's natural instinct is to want to help. And of course, once somebody has picked up a baby bird and removed it from the site where they found it and then maybe made the trip to us, returning the bird in a lot of situations just isn't an option. So we're seeing a huge number of fledglings and nestlings as well so lots of different birds you know the puffin you're right is a lot of people's favorites the songbirds i have to tell you they've stolen my heart this spring and early summer because they have just been fantastic to look after a little bit tricky to begin with because the feeding schedule is so intense but once you get the, the, the diet right and the feeding schedule right, as long as you don't need too much sleep because it's it's early morning until bedtime, they do sleep overnight, which is fantastic. So you do get some respite. But um, we split the work. So I've tended to look after the fledglings and, the, and most of the baby birds this season whilst um, leaving the owlets with Hadassah. So those that want to be fed much later at night and much earlier in the morning um, so that we're not both working 24 7 and then of course you get the emergency calls as well so you have to stop what you're doing to be able to go and, and look after and work on a bird that needs immediate attention so it's been it's been busy it's been fascinating um and the joy of course of being able to release birds we've got a, a small aviary of um songbirds due to be released and that is it's the icing on the cake, isn't it? It is what you put in all the hours and the work for to be able to see these birds are now at the point where they can become independent and off they go to live their lives. Because 
as Adassa says, if you save one bird, potentially you save hundreds. So raising one fledgling successfully and letting it go, who knows how many young it'll go on to have. So it, it's a huge um, period of excitement when you're getting ready to, to open aviaries and get ready to release birds back out into the wild. I was going to say there must be great joy in taking a, an injured bird in and rehabilitating it and then being able to uh, release it back out into the wild. But is it not difficult or is it difficult to not become attached? Surely there must be a, a certain amount of bonding that goes on in that time frame. So is the wild release, um, obviously it's a joyous occasion. Is, is it also perhaps a little bittersweet? It's always bittersweet. And we have enough birds coming in and that we're looking after that you would think it would be difficult to get too attached because, you know, there's a bit of a conveyor belt at times. But if you care enough to do this work, if you are committed enough to put in the hours and, and to really put heart and soul into caring for these birds, you can't help but become attached. It, it, it's natural. And sometimes we joke that we're, we're probably too soft and we get attached too easily but would you keep on doing this work if that wasn't the way that you were made so we go to great lengths to make sure that we don't get too connected for the bird's sake so that connection will be an emotional one for us but we work really hard to maintain the independence of the birds so that when they go they don't miss us half as much as we miss them but it is bittersweet it's the, <laughs> be it's the best feeling in the world we had a an oyster catcher last year that had um, a wing break in three places um, and we name most of the birds glenn it, it because we need to be we, do, we don't want to be referring to birds as numbers so we do tend to name them and it's easy to name them because they have their own little characters so when we had spent seven weeks last year rehabilitating hope the oyster catcher the day of her wild release was really tricky some of these birds just catch your heart they really do and it's it's you're right it's bittersweet it's the joy of seeing them released but that pang of letting them go having invested so much time and effort and and desperately wanting to be sure that they're going to have a full happy life and that they're going to thrive not just survive so you want them to be equipped and fit and ready to go um, and to live the best possible life that they can pain-free interacting with their own species breeding migrating tricky bits involved in that because for some birds you know you need to get them well and released before they migrate because if you miss that opportunity and then you release the bird well that's not responsible either so it is, it's a huge emotional roller coaster, and we have losses as well as successes. Of course we do, um, and they hit particularly hard. You mentioned when we talked offline before that there's a, a window of opportunity once a bird is taken in and it's nursed back to health that the bird wants to return to the wild. But if, if, if held in captivity too long, that window of opportunity can in effect close where the bird sort of loses its will to go back into the wild. We've probably seen it more with um, songbirds, to be honest, the garden birds. Um, if they've got something like an impact injury and they've got maybe um, some neurological damage and they get the TLC and the rest and the treatment, the anti-inflammatories and the pain relief, and, and they're ready to go, you need to be very aware of how the bird is behaving and reacting because if it's ready to go, you don't want to hold it back. If you hold it back because you're not sure, because you hesitate and you take too long, 
sometimes the birds figure out that they're not getting to go and they're ready to go and you can lose those birds so we have to be particularly careful there's there's a real delicacy to the timing you don't want to be too early because you want them to be able to fend for themselves but you don't want to leave it too late because if they give up if they decide that you know they've given all of their their fighting spirit and they're just not getting to go then you can lose birds. So it is tricky, and and that's something we're really careful with. As soon as we think that they're ready, we have um, some of the birds that are in aviaries, they're in an aviary within a huge knitted tunnel. So if we're pretty sure that they're good to go, but we just want to see how their flight is, how they're looking after themselves, we can release them into a much bigger area, check that they really are fit to go, and then open the door and let them go. And and we work really hard to get that timing right. And that's typical of a lot of other rescues. We've got um, other rescues in the, the north of Scotland. Um, I can think of, of a few, but for example, Newark through in Aberdeenshire, they, they deal with a lot of birds as well. We're all really geared up to watch the birds watching their behavior and making sure that as soon as they're ready we give them that chance to get out i know in research in other cases of of wild release or rewilding of captive bred animals human contact has to be in some cases kept to a very minimum so that the animal in, in your case birds become too familiar with too dependent on too comfortable put it how you will, with human interaction, because they are wild animals and they're going back to live in the wild and fend for themselves. So is that a consideration that you have to keep in mind is the amount of human contact that you have with these uh, birds? It is, and it varies from species to species. So um, a song thrush that will land on my shoulder and take food from my fingertips um, will rewild beautifully once they get that call, once they're out in the open. I'll still see them around. They'll call to me. Um, I still I leave a lot of food out um, to make sure that they have some support while they get used to being out there in the wild. That's really cute, isn't it? A song thrush landing on your shoulder and, and taking food from your fingertips. Not quite so good if that's a herring gull because it's a bigger bird. It's kind of squawky and messy. So <laughs> yes, you have to be, you have to be really. And th- those are the birds you don't want, you know, landing on people down at the beach when they're, when they're sitting having um, a snack on the on the the water's edge. So yes, you have to be really careful. Handling of some birds helps them, um, particularly if you've got um, solo chicks um, because that little bit of company um, and companionship can make all the difference to whether those little birds survive or not. We don't always receive in nests of nestlings. Sometimes it will just be one chick or it's one young bird that's been caught by a cat or a dog or another predator and brought into us. So some company can really help that bird to heal um, and and to, to interact other birds, you've got to be really careful. And I think of the owls in particular, you know, we've got to be extremely careful that we don't allow any imprinting to happen. Um, we avoid that at all costs. So we go to great lengths with disguises sometimes to make sure that they don't know where the food is coming from that's being provided to them while they're healing and getting ready to go again, because we don't want that dependency on humans. That could be catastrophic for them going forward. So depending on the bird, um, determines our behavior in a, in a lot of respects and we're very careful to always think about what is the right thing to do for this particular bird that's that we're looking after at the moment because what's right for bird a won't be right for bird b and we have to change our behavior and our approach accordingly 
How did you become involved in this type of work? Is this something you set out originally in life to do? Or did this happen somewhere when, you know, life throws you lemons and you turn to make lemonade out of it? I got thrown some lemons, Glenn. Um, I spent nearly 30 years in finance um, and um, I was made redundant, a, a, you know, a process that a lot of people face, particularly in this changing world that we're living in now. But for that 30 years, while I was working in banking and finance, um, I was hugely involved with animals. I had a pack of rescued dogs. Um, I kind of collect animals that are waifs and strays, so dogs and cats and hens and turkeys and all sorts. If, a, if, an, if an animal with three legs or one eye arrives at my door, um, it gets to stay pretty much forever. So unsurprisingly, my path crossed with Blue Highlands because of an injured bird. I had found a tawny owl that was... Um, it was on the ground. It was really not doing very well. It was wet. It was cold. Um, and it shouldn't have been where it was at the time. It wasn't a nestling. It was an adult bird. It was particularly thin. It allowed me to pick it up, which should never happen. And when I picked it up and checked, its keel was particularly prominent, very sharp. And that's always a good indication. Um, I happen to know that from watching some nature programs, you know, a prominent keel. And I know on a, on a, um, on any of my poultry, a prominent kill would suggest a problem with, with retaining weight. So I knew there was a problem and I googled. I didn't realise that Blue Highlands had been set up in Brora in the village that I live in and when I found that out I was on the phone to them immediately met Hadassah we, we spent some time in each other's company and got on like an absolute house on fire because for the 30 years I've been working with um, dog fur, um, she's been working with feathers and some other animals as well and we just had a a, a really instant connection and as our friendship developed and she found out that I was going to be made redundant we started talking about an opportunity an opportunity for me to follow a completely different path one that naturally I had been interested in anyway with animal welfare um, and that's that's how the whole thing started so yeah I, I was certainly thrown a, a large basket of lemons and this is my lemonade so um have not looked back for one minute <laughs> i mean people say it don't they the best job in the world but i get to wake up every morning care for birds that need help assistance tlc work with somebody who a i hugely admire and who has become an just the most incredible friend um and we have a wonderful working relationship and together we make a real difference to these birds. You know, we don't get to save them all, but what we do every day is we make a difference. And I think if you can get up every morning, go to work knowing that you are going to make a difference, you're going to have a positive impact on the life of um, an animal. Wow. That, I mean, that that's, that's an incredible thing to be able to do. And unsurprisingly to most people who know me, um, nobody's terribly shocked that I've ended up in this line of work, working, maybe they would have been surprised that it would be birds. Um, but it's fantastic. And, and the support from friends, family, the community, and our wider supporter network for the work that we're doing goes to show that lots of people have big hearts. Um, and they really appreciate that somebody is looking out for these birds um, and for educating other people about the birds. I mean, I've learned a huge amount since I since I joined Blue Highlands. It's, it's been a huge learning curve 
but it's fascinating and we get to share that information with other people and people are really interested in the work, what we do, um, how it all works, how the birds are treated and, and recover. Um, and we've had some huge support. So it's not just me that's loving it. It's, it's everybody that we're sharing the journey with as well. And yet Blue Highlands is a very small intimate personal operation it, it is just you and hadassah the founding director and unlike the centers i mentioned earlier the the seabird center and um, the fair isle operation up in in shetland those have large tourist elements in their programming i know fair isle actually has spaces to let you can go and, and stay there and, and it's like a bird observatory and and the seabird center of course has a huge visitor center blue highlands is not that your facilities are very much personal facilities. As I understand it, it's on the private property of uh, where Hadassah and her family make their home, and it's on your small croft where you make your home. It is. So um, it started really as Hadassah's family-supported charity. Um, they paid for everything. It was, you know, you could argue it was an indulgence to begin with she has an absolute love and passion for the work that she does but it was self-funded so it wasn't until they moved to Brora and things started to expand at a rate that simply um, outgrew her own personal funds you know there, there are huge costs associated with transport veterinary care treatment housing food you know the bills are are, are big and they're growing so it is just the two of us as things stand. We don't receive any central funding at all. It is a, um, and has been up until now, um, as I say, a family based concern. But by necessity, it's getting bigger. But we're still not, we don't have a visitor center. You know, we're, we're not a zoo per se. We're, we, we don't have bird displays that's not what we do so we have some limited visiting ordinarily just on a Sunday afternoon when people can come along and we'll have a chat with them and show them the birds and, and let them know about the work that we do and we do have a couple of birds that like to be um, up front and centre in front of people ambassador birds if you like for our educational talks um, but it is very small primarily it's just about the birds. It's about what we do to look after the birds. But there is a growing interest and um, number of people who want to come along and share that experience with us. But if we were open Monday to Friday, we wouldn't be able to look after the birds. If there were a dozen of us, that might make life a little bit easier. But that's not possible because that has a huge financial impact. So what money there is goes on my salary, the birds, um, you know, it's a very small concern, but it is growing and our number of supporters is, is growing. And, and we're looking at different funding streams to make sure that we can grow in the right way um, and still provide all of the care and the requirements that meet the birds needs. But you're right. We're not a huge centre. We don't have anything to back up what we're doing. We don't have visitor accommodation or a gift shop or anything like that. So it's our small group of um Particularly, we've got some some fundraising volunteers now who've just come on board. We've obviously been very impacted um, by lockdown in the UK. Um, we're over 100 days now since we've been able to go out and deliver educational talks, visits, invite people to come to the centre and get involved in some of the community fundraising events that, that we were lined up to do. So it's been particularly tough over that, um, that period. 
Um, but we've managed and uh, it's with the, the support of people that want to see us continue the work that we're doing. That's how we've been able to do it. I was going to ask about the impact of COVID-19 and certainly the, the lockdown. You and Hadassah use your own personal vehicles when you go out and do these wild releases. And as the center has become more well-known, and obviously the number of your patients, if I can use that term, continues to grow as people learn that you're there and, and available to to provide this service. So fundraising has got to be a concern, and you're doing some unique things in that regard, even in light of lockdown, one of which is an ongoing online auction. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, we had to be a bit resourceful, Glenn. You know, we we can't go out to some of the the community events that would have been hosted right the way through spring and summer where we could have maybe um, sold some merchandise or or carried out some fundraising. So we, we had to be a little bit resourceful at a time when we didn't really have time to do anything more than look after the birds. So we've got a couple of um, remote volunteers because, of course, we had to suspend our volunteer program that was just starting to get going to help us out. But we couldn't have volunteers coming to the properties, so that had to stop. We made a little bit of time through necessity to um, launch some fundraising activities. We had a successful crowdfunder, which really meant that we could continue to open our doors to new bird patients, like uh, like that phrase, um, because that was a very real possibility with the COVID-19 lockdown impact that if we weren't able to raise some funds, we would have to say, I'm sorry, but we can't take any more birds to treat them. That's the last thing we would want to do. That 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 left us with a, a pretty sick feeling in the pits of our stomachs to think that we might have to say no when we have the knowledge, the skills and the ability to help the birds, but not the funding and the resources. So we last month, we held our first online auction, some incredibly generous supporters donated items. Um, and we held our first auction in June. It, it, it was great. The proceeds of that auction guaranteed food for all of the birds for a whole month, money that we didn't have to take out of dwindling resources. So that, that, that was brilliant. And it's something we're going to do every month. It gives people an opportunity to do a few things. They can have a sort through things and donate an item or commission something or, or buy something specifically to give to the auction, which you've done for July, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you. Some beautiful sea glass made into a pendant that some lucky bidder is going to be very, very pleased with. So Lots of different items, an opportunity for supporters to bid, to give money for an item that ultimately the money is still going into the pot to care for the birds. We've got a couple of raffles for some beautiful artwork that's been donated by some very well-known wildlife artists, actually. Gorgeous work, signed limited editions. We have um, a raffle ongoing for um, golf games at four of the of the local golf courses with their support, which has also been incredible. Um, we are we're looking also at potentially an online shop. Again, that takes a lot of time and resources. So I'm very lucky to have had um, a couple of ladies that I know um, who previously supported our work come forward and say, look, let us help you with volunteering some hours to help get that going and to lighten the load a little bit. So the support has been incredible. We've set up a PayPal account for fundraising so people can make it really easy to pop some money in. And just this week, a couple of people said, you know, could we support you on an ongoing basis? So rather than buying something from the auction or sending a one-off donation, couldn't we set up like a, a standing order from my bank account into Blue Highlands, knowing that 
an amount of money every month that I can afford would come into the account and would help. So you would know that you've got a regular stream of financial assistance coming in. So that that's a huge deal for us to know that people want to support us on an ongoing basis. So we're getting that set up as well. So lots of different options. Um, and also we're looking at grant funding for some new projects that are coming up. So we're spinning lots of plates at the moment, Glenn, but with some great support and help from other people, making it possible um, to look at these different streams of support and funding so that we can move forward with the work that we're doing, cope with the expanding number of patients and still stay stocked up on clinic supplies and food and build new enclosures and mews, um, some of those for disabled birds, some of them for larger birds, it, it's still very exciting and things are moving at quite a pace. You've mentioned several times volunteers and um, when lockdown is fully reopened, whenever that may be, what do you look for in volunteers and what type of opportunities are there for volunteers in connection with the center? The beauty of what we do is that actually the volunteers that we don't need, if I start that, we don't need people that can handle birds because honestly, that primary work is carried out by myself and Hadassah. But what we do need is people that have a range of skills and abilities in so many other areas. So people that can build things, whether that's joiners, um, carpenters, um, people that are happy to make um, owl boxes, nest boxes, um, people that can help when we need to recycle or upcycle timber that we've received. We do a lot of building work, Glenn, because every time that we get a bird and it goes into an enclosure, that's one space we've lost temporarily, hopefully, until that bird or birds are ready to go. Then we need to build a new one. And we have the we have the land to do it. We have the space to do it. But what we don't have at the moment because of the, the lockdown is we don't have the, um, I was going to say manpower, but people power. We don't have the resources in terms of physical presence to help us to put those enclosures together and they're not overly complicated so you don't have to be a qualified carpenter to help us build an enclosure for a bird you just need to be willing and capable and prepared to have a go the jobs range from helping to tidy up outside after we've had a busy period and and we just need some help to get things organized it might be helping to restock the clinic. It might be shifting boxes into freezers because of the, the types of food that we have, particularly for the raptors. The big one moving forward for us is probably going to be online. Most of our engagement and traffic is through social media. It's through Facebook predominantly. And we are breaking our way into the world of Twitter, but neither of us are particularly adept at tweeting, which is ridiculous for a bird centre. A bird centre that doesn't tweet, that that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> it, it's probably things like administration, record keeping. Um, there are going to be some opportunities to help us out with social media. We're going to need lots of help in lots of different ways. And I would think anybody that's keen and interested is going to see um, a volunteer opportunity that might appeal to them. And we're going to get those um, publicized as soon as it's safe for people to re-engage with us um, person to person as opposed to just virtually. And in some cases, though, some of the things you're talking about, social media help, that can be done online and, and in a virtual relationship. And so it doesn't even need to be a volunteer who lives uh, in the highlands of Scotland and in uh, the Brora area. So really, um, the people who might have an interest could be volunteering from all over for you. 
you're absolutely right. We always want to give the first opportunities for volunteers in our immediate area. It's a small community, a small village community, and we have people with the right skill set that will want to help us. So we love to say yes to local people. They are our main supporters and our closest supporters. But you're absolutely right. If there's expertise a little bit further afield that will help us, we will take our help from wherever it comes, to be honest. So you're right, there could be somebody sitting 500 miles away, 5,000 miles away. And if if they're able to offer us a little bit of time, help, resources, assistance to get things moving in a way that engages more of our audience in the right way, which ultimately saves us time and we can give that time to the birds, everybody wins. So help from any and all directions um, is, is always to be encouraged and appreciated. Some people would question why intervene in the case of an injured bird. They would argue that, well, nature is nature. Um, if an, a bird is injured and can't survive or may not have a, a high chance of survival, then it's survival of the fittest. So why why do you get involved? Why is it important to rescue and release birds back into the wild? Because if the damage was genuinely and purely down to nature, a predator snatching a bird and the bird escaping and being injured, in all likelihood the bird would die of its injuries. You're absolutely right. But 94% of the cases, the patients that come into us, are not impacted by nature they're impacted by humans directly or indirectly so whether that is a vehicle strike not natural a window strike or impact not natural um a you know a domestic cat one of yours or my pet cats catching a bird and and mauling it and not killing it but injuring it that's not nature a bird that has been struck a kestrel struck by a train as i said last week that's not natural that's a man-made object striking a bird and we intervene almost as a a quiet apology, to be honest, Glenn, to the birds. You know, humans got in the way of that bird going about its day-to-day business. We caused pain, injury, damage. So somebody ought to put that right, or at least have a really good go at putting it right, to get some veterinary care, to look after it, to help it to get back on its feet and back into the sky. So it's not about interfering with nature. It's about putting right the things that something other than nature has caused. So I'm with you. You know, the natural order of the the natural world is that predators will hunt, they will kill, they will eat, they will maim, and sometimes they will leave um, their prey in, in a state where it's going to die of its injuries and languish. But where humans directly or indirectly have been the cause of the problem somebody ought to step up and try to put that right in the cases where they can. So when somebody finds a bird that's been hit by a car with a broken wing, it's our job to do something to try to redress that balance. So that's why injured birds should come to us. That's why we should receive these patients and we should do our level best to restore them back to the wild where they belong. My thanks to my guest, Jane Wilson, Assistant Director of the Blue Highlands Raptor Rescue and Avian Conservation Centre, for giving us some of her time and some insight into the Centre's important work for Scotland's bird life. As noted in our discussion, the Centre is conducting monthly online auctions to replace fundraising opportunities lost to the COVID-19 pandemic. You can learn more, view items available, and even place a bid 
by checking out the center's Facebook page, a link to which will be in our show notes on the website at www.underthetartansky.com. Now, Jane tells me one of the center's most pressing needs is for an automobile suitable to carrying out the wild releases of birds. At present, both Jane and Director Hadassah Braskova are using their personal vehicles, a family sedan and a Mini Cooper, ill-equipped to the task at hand. What's needed is a 4x4 SUV or equivalent capable of off-road travel in the Scottish Highlands. Now, if anyone listening might be able to help, you can reach out to Jane through the center's social media or get in touch with me here at the podcast. Next time, we'll go from the Highlands to the city center when my guest will be Russell Dalglish, the co-founder and chairman of the Scottish Business Network. Finally, if you enjoy the content of Under the Tartan Sky, the kindness of a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to online content would be most appreciated. Likewise, a mention on your social media channels can help others to discover and hopefully enjoy our All Things Scottish podcast. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalev, I guess Alpha Kubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Or get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartan sky. That's the underscore symbol tartan sky. And thank you for listening.